Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. We have two guests today, Dr. Raymond Moody, author of the classic Life After Life that introduced the phenomenon of the near-death experience to the mainstream, and his longtime friend, David Hinshaw, a seasoned producer and director whose clients include the BBC, A&E, the History Channel, and PBS. Together, they have produced a pilot for a new video series of conversations between Dr. Moody and people who have had experiences that are offering new insights into the ultimate human questions. The first film features neurosurgeon Dr. Eben Alexander, author of the runaway bestseller Proof of Heaven, the extraordinary story of Eben's return from being clinically dead for a week. The conversations of these two medical doctors in the film advances the discussion to a whole new level as they consider science, quantum physics, the question of the soul, and the possibility of the eventual combination of silence and science and spirituality as partners rather than adversaries. Raymond and David, welcome. Thank you so much, Miriam, for having me on your program and you know, it's really good to be with you again. Well, you're halfway around the world on tour. I'm so glad we were able to connect. So the listener will have to be um, uh, understanding if we have a bit of uh, wonkiness in the connection. Yes. So who came up with the idea for this series? My friend David Henshaw suggested to me many years ago that he wanted to do a series with me talking with um, various kinds of interesting people. So it was David's idea, yes. Aha. And what is your hope for the series? What do you hope that it will accomplish? You know, at age 69, Miriam, I have really changed my slant on this whole thing. And, um, I really want to get information out to the people. You know, I mean, I know that, uh, and I'm not a fanatic, I hope, but uh, I do think this is very, you know, interesting and important information. I first got interested in uh, the question of life after death as a college uh, first-year student at the University of Virginia, reading Plato and studying Plato, who was very interested, as you may know, in the question of life after death and specifically in near-death experiences. But at that time, it was really more intellectual to me in that my idea was um, exploring myself philosophical um, uh, problems. And then as I've aged, I mean, now I'm 69, I I have a somewhat bigger view. I have um, two young children myself, 15 and 12, and I'm beginning to understand that um, they're going to live in a world with others, uh, you know, and that it's very important for me at this phase in my life to try to smooth things out for the young people who are coming along, and also to serve people in my generation. Um, you know, I grew up totally in the, in the world of thinking and philosophy and psychiatry, and um, 
And these things are, are, were of interest to me from the time I was 18 years old. But what I'm seeing now is that there are so many people in my age range who've been through their life often in business or some pursuit like that and, uh, and have, have focused their attention on the workaday world. And now as they're entering this period of life, they really feel a sense of urgency about uh, trying to understand this question of what happens to us when we die. And so just, I think, more than anything else of being 69 and, and focusing, <laughs> as many people uh, do at this age, not on myself anymore, but on the, um, the young people and, and on the whole world, and uh, that as I think of it as a service Mm-hmm. Now, you have interviewed so many people over the years who have had these experiences. Is there some kind of common denominator of how they have been changed after the experience? Oh, yes, indeed. And as you know, uh, Miriam, the, the, the pattern of near-death experiences is, is the same world over regardless of people's culture. They tell us that... Uh, at the point their heart stops beating, they leave their physical bodies and go through a passageway into a light where they meet relatives and friends who've passed away. They, they see their entire life reviewed in a panorama. And when they come back um, to this life, there are two major effects. And one, of course, is that this experience con that con completely convinces them that what we call death is just a transition into a, a different reality. And, and also, they learn from their experience that the most important thing that we can be doing while we're here is to learn how to love. So those two things, I think, are universal among people. They say that uh, the experience uh, makes them lose their fear of death because of their con complete conviction that there's an afterlife. And secondly, that um, what we're here for basically is to learn how to love. Mm. My goodness, if that message could become universal, what a world changer that would be. So um, this, this first film in the series, um, you interviewed Eben Alexander, who I had the pleasure of interviewing as well. Yes. Um, you said that his experience was the most astounding that you've ever heard of in four decades of studying yes. this. Why did you feel that way? <clears throat> well, there, there are several specific reasons. Number one, his experience is extraordinary, and it's, it is um, the, the only ones, one I've ever heard, um, insofar as I can remember, where he describes the state of existence, which he kind of describes it like a mud or muck, uh, like a, um, an experience where he was mired in, in um uh, mud, as I think he described it, and and um, uh, was not quite into the conscious level yet, as though he were in some sort of waiting zone. Now, the reason that's so um, 
uh, fascinating to me is that I knew of that detail, not from any other near-death experience person I had ever interviewed, but rather from the literary and philosophical tradition describing these things. Because Plato, who actually was a very, very brilliant and insightful person, in his descriptions of the underworld, talked of this um, this very fact that he said there were there were people in certain parts of the uh, afterlife that seem um, sort of mired in this this mud and and Plato specifically says in something they call and then he puts it in quotation marks mud mm-hmm. well that very same theme is also in the writings of Jean-Paul Sartre who wrote about this primal sort of heavily inert or inertia-like um, uh, realm, uh, which he described also. He used the word mud. Um, and that identical theme is also in one of the writings of um, C.S. Lewis. So I found it so fascinating that this man who's a neurosurgeon and who, who certainly wasn't, you know, his education was not in the classical uh, domain like mine was, but that nonetheless he experienced, he, he describes this experience so beautifully, and I'm astounded that this is, uh, again, you know, that I had heard of this too from these, um, these great writers and philosophical thinkers. Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, one um, reason I find Evan's experience so utterly fascinating is that it en- enables me to see the process of philosophical transformation in a man whose life had been spent in the practical domain of neurosurgery and had not really spent much time in the philosophical realm trying to, to think of um, consciousness and the what we call in philosophy the mind-body problem, the, the problem that probably was first addressed by Pythagoras in about 550 B.C., but remains one of the most important philosophical problems questions, and that's what we call philosophically the mind-body problem. And that is, just to put it into the nutshell, um, we really don't have any idea whatsoever how this unique um, experience that we can all have of consciousness, direct self-consciousness, where we are directly aware of our own conscious self and being. In reality, nobody has the slightest idea of how this is connected to the material substance of the body or related to the physical uh, dimension of existence. And so to see a man who had sort of spent his life, of course, knowing a lot about the brain, but had not really reflected on the philosophical dimension of it, and that he had this profound and overwhelming experience that changed his perspective on what I think is the most basic quantity in the universe, namely 
consciousness to watch his process because he you know from his experience he realized no you know that that consciousness is not the artifact of the brain that it is it is something that is more real or that it is primary that mm-hmm. consciousness is primary and and that the the physical side is is uh, is really something of the secondary nature so those things and um and also third that the the um the medical situation was so extraordinary i mean as you know i'm a physician myself i've studied neurology and in in our psychiatry training we have to do neurosciences and uh, neurology as well and uh, i mean i know about e coli meningitis and uh, this is virtually unsurvivable that that uh, i think it's something like a 97% mortality rate and so that um that Edmund survived this virtually unsurvivable illness and that moreover he wasn't impaired almost all of the very few survivors of this illness end up with cognitive deficits and um and, and so on and and yet you know from your experience with Edmund there's no cognitive deficits there he no, is some of his friends say he's even more energetic after this ordeal um, than before. And a fourth thing is that by the current kind of um, neurophysiological understanding of consciousness, the medical records show that Eben could not have been conscious during that period. Yet he came back saying that far from being unconscious, he was more conscious than in order than in ordinary daily reality. That he he entered into a realm of existence that is, as I've heard many patients say, more real than real. Mm-hmm. So for all of those reasons, I, I say it as as that. Um, you know, this is, I think, the most remarkable single near-death experience I have ever heard. Well, there seem, I don't know whether because um, people are coming out with these experiences that more people are coming forth to tell about their own or whether they're actually occurring with greater frequency. Um, but there certainly is a, a wave of them coming through. It's interesting. They are. And, I, and my, my opinion is that the reason we're seeing them more frequently is the um, development of, of cardiopulmonary resuscitation technology. Ah. You know, after I went to medical school in 1972, and um, that was, what, 41 years ago now. And medical progress hasn't simply stopped, you know, I mean, the the enormous developments that have taken place in the four decades that I've been in in medicine. I mean, we are routinely pulling people back um, from a state now that when I was in medical school, it would have been utterly hopeless. Now, what you would expect under those circumstances is that the near-death experiences would become more incoherent. That is, that the closer the patient came to, you know, final death, that the more um, uh, uh, incoherent and confused and so on that the experience would become, right? That's what you would naturally expect. 
But in reality, what we see is that the experiences are getting more complex and more extraordinary um, the closer people get to death. So um, that, 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 I think, is, um, is why this, this phenomenon is occurring, you see, of this, uh, this wave of these things, because we can just bring so many more people back now. From but a state there, that a few years ago would have been regarded as sure. death. There's another interesting point, which is that another almost universal report is that these people, when they come back, say that they didn't want to come back, but they were told that their work is unfinished. Oh, yes. And so it's like they're sent back to give testimony to this in order to to help other people understand the nature of consciousness. Is that you know? Uh, yes. And that has often been in these reports, even back from the very beginning. Plato, who wrote about an experience like this in his Republic, um, uh, des- described the um the case of Ur, a warrior who was believed dead on the battlefield and and uh, spontaneously revived to the surprise of his fellow soldiers at the funeral. And uh, Ur came back saying that he had been told when he was on the other side that he was allowed to see certain things that most people uh, weren't. Just He was sort of given a guided tour so that he could go back and um, tell his um, – fellow earthlings about what had happened to him. I heard that same uh, idea from George Ritchie, the first person I ever knew, the first living person I ever knew who had a near-death experience. And uh, I heard George's experience in 1965 when I was a uh, third-year undergraduate student of philosophy at the University of Virginia. And George said that too. He was sort of given this... um, Guided to her and told that told that he should go back and um, report on it to the rest of us, and so was Evan, as you know. And so this is a theme that you do see um, from from time to time: the theme of the person who's to to serve as a messenger to the to the rest of us. Incidentally, that was also one of the functions of the shamans. The um, the shaman typically in their other world journeys would go over to the other side and they would uh, be met by a spirit or a god or a goddess and instructed to take certain information back to the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was told that uh, you were the first person that Eben came out to after his experience. Um, were you no, friends? No, that's not true. No? No, that's not true. I, yeah, Eben had uh, told us to others before he and I met. Absolutely, uh-huh. yes. Uh-huh. Now, uh, I was um, remarking when you were telling me about the mud sequence where, where mm-hmm. Eben talks about his worm's eye view. Um, I interviewed... Uh, Eliza Medhus, who's also a medical doctor in Texas, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and she has written a book about um, her son and the afterlife, mm-hmm. where um, his communications are being channeled. What I found so interesting was that he also had a description of this very same state, this kind of 
Merkel. Oh, oh, good, good. Okay. Yes, yeah. absolutely uh, corroborated it and just kind of leapt yes. out at me. Yes. You know, the C.S. Lewis writing in which that uh, detail is given is uh, Paralandria, um, one of his novels, and it's described in there, too. And I forget which specific uh, work of Jean-Paul Sartre, but I remember reading it in a um, in a uh, Sartre's work when I was a philosophy student. Mm-hmm. What I found interesting in, in both of these um, accounts of, of uh, Eric and Eben was that the way to get out of that state was simply to ask, to be open. Yeah, yeah. And um, the the implications for uh, consciousness uh, are, are just so fascinating. Do, I, I would love your opinion on how you think the world would change if people really understood that consciousness persists. Thank you for that question, because that's very important, Miriam. And um, first of all, I'll say what I've heard people say from the time I first began to investigate this back in the 60s and uh, and and forward from then. I've heard many people over the years express the opinion that if we could have, for example, a rational proof of an afterlife, then everything would be great on the earth, that we would love each other and, and be peaceful and, um, you know, have a harmonious life here. Um, I would certainly wish that that were true, but frankly, I don't know whether it is or not. Because, number one, um, people who have near-death experiences during which they see everything they've ever done in a panorama before them and that they relive all their actions, not from the, the perspective they had when they did the action, but rather from the perspective of those with whom they've interacted. And so what they say is that if you see yourself in this panorama doing a, a mean-spirited or unkind action to someone else, then this, and then, then in this uh, panorama, you are embedded in the consciousness of the person with whom you've interacted, and so you feel directly and empathically the hurt that you brought about in that person's life, which seems to me to be the ideal learning experience, mm-hmm. right? What better way to learn? Now, or if you see yourself doing a kind-hearted action uh, or a loving action, then you feel directly and empathically the good feelings you brought about in that person's life. But even after an experience like that of seeing everything they ever did and the loving and the unloving, um, what people will say is that it's still very difficult to get through this life without, uh, you know, blowing up at people or saying things you wish you hadn't have said and so on. Dr. George Ritchie mentioned that to me when I was about 22 years old. He, 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 um, he mentioned that. And um, so um, I don't think it would necessarily make people – all okay and all harmonious and all better. However, I do know one thing for absolute sure, 
that a rational proof of an afterlife would do. And that's that it would totally change the structure of the human mind. And the reason is, as the greatest thinkers about logic have pointed out throughout history, the logic system and the rational system that we use is simply not set up to prove or disprove a life after death. That's the logical reality. Now, so therefore, you see that if there is eventually a rational proof of an afterlife, what that means is that the entire human mind will evolve. So that, to me, is the most exciting prospect. Well, they do say that uh, in, in certain uh, esoteric circles that the evolution of mankind is moving toward um, much greater, uh, I suppose, what you would call psychic or telepathic abilities um, that we will be able to uh, tune into the universal mind, which is pretty much what people do when they go into either near death or out of body or other kind of psychic experiences. Um, maybe this is just a preview of coming attractions. Uh, it could be, and also, um, it, you know, many things that at first seem impossible eventually come into reality because of developments in logic and so or I'm sorry in in uh, in knowledge and yes I mean I think there could be some sort of natural process whereby entirely new faculties came about in the human mind I mean we could even we're even beginning to conceive of them technologically right I mean with all of the um um Genetic engineering and all of the wonderful knowledge about neurobiology and so on, it, it, uh, it seems quite possible that um, we could um, uh, advance to the, yes. our development right by, by, um, through knowledge, too, mm-hmm. yes. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. In fact, my, my son-in-law is, uh, works in that very area of uh, uh, biology and, and uh, you know, the, the marriage of uh, biological systems and uh, computer-like calculations. Yes, well, just let me give one example. There's a, there's a um, expert now in vision who has um, figured out a way to enable people to see a broader spectrum and to see um, uh, colors that we can't now imagine and so on. And, and this is... This is not science fiction. This is not new age things. This is, you know, a neurophysiologist who has plainly figured out how to do it. What's the basis of it? It it would involve, I can't remember, I read the article in The New Scientist, but basically um, it would just involve, um, you know, all these amazing things now like gene transfer and so on. Mm -hmm. And it just, uh, so... um, so it's it's possible he shows to be able to um, eventually develop um, um, a chemical, for want of a better term, or an organic compound that's associated with the vision um, system anyway that we can introduce, and uh, this would enable us to see colors that we can't see now. 
Oh, Brave New World. I was just reading about some experiments that were done at the beginning of the uh, the millennium of introducing uh, two ova, human ova, and one sperm uh, to produce, uh, you know, multigenetic babies. Um, and yes, and I think you've probably heard about the uh, result. It's now possible and maybe has been done in which uh, – there, there can be um, children who actually have three parents, and the, the reason is that there are certain rare diseases that involve the mitochondria, which uh, you, you get all of your uh, – the mitochondria are these little tiny organs inside the cell that essentially generate um, energy. And because of a certain thing I won't describe, the fact is that we get all of our mitochondrial DNA from our Mother, and and in people who's who have a hereditary defect, you see, of these cells, it's now quite possible to get a mother donor who uh, who will donate her, um, you know, mitochondrial DNA, which is uh, which is adequate or or normal, and and this this could be. Uh, introduced into a fertilized ovum uh, with the sperm of a man and then the uh, fertilized ovum mm-hmm. from the woman with this defect. But then the mitochondrial DNA from the other woman would be introduced. So you would have a, um individual there who um, would really essentially have two mothers and a father. That's quite um, as a matter of fact, this is getting ready to happen in England where this work is being done. And this would be, you see, a marvelous medical advance because um, people who have this particular defect, I mean, it's a terrible thing. So this is a, um, a procedure now that can cure this. Indeed. It reminds me of the anecdote of the woman who said to um, Winston Churchill, you know, if we had a baby, yes. imagine what it would look like, my looks and your brains. And he said, yes, madam, but what happens if it had your brains and my looks? Yes, yes. Well, there may be some stumbles along the way with this, <laughs> but, but you know, it's coming. It's coming. It's, um, you know, this is... Um, this is quite an extraordinary world. And, and Miriam, I take comfort from the fact that at every juncture in history where these radical things have been done, um, you know, there has been this kind of worry and so on. And yet, you know, we've gotten pretty we've gotten by pretty well, I think. And, you know, for, I, I remember, for example, as I'm sure you do, too, when the first test tube baby came about just maybe 30 or so years ago. And at that time, that seemed so extraordinary. Well, now there are, I think, thousands and thousands of um, test tube babies um, wandering the planet, and, and we haven't had any um, difficulties from them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, then there's the the story of the boys from Brazil. Uh, Anyway, we have to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with Dr. Raymond Moody. (music) 
Inspired by the number one best-selling book, Summer's Path, by Scott Bloom, founder of Daily Ohm, Walk-In is an award-winning film that boldly confronts some of life's biggest mysteries. In this emotionally gripping independent film, ailing engineer Don Newport comes face-to-face -face with his personal destiny when he meets an angel named Robert while on his deathbed. Robert ultimately inhabits Don's previous body while comically grappling with his newfound humanness. A surprise ending leaves viewers with a unique perspective on death and the immortality of the soul. Now available on DVD and VOD at www.walkinthemovie.com. Silent, The Power of Silence by Gregory Malouf, founder of the Epsilon Healing Academy. Gregory reveals the secrets to real-life success through his engrossing stories, spiritual insights, and relevant examples from his own personal journey, as well as the experiences of those around him. It is these examples and the simple yet highly effective steps that you will easily integrate into your own life that make Silent so remarkable. Silent answers the most commonly asked questions. How can I consciously create the life I desire? How can I overcome limiting beliefs that hold me back? How can I live free from self-doubt, stress, and anxiety? How can I have more authentic, loving relationships, more wealth, and more energy for what's really important? Silent is an overwhelmingly honest account of Malouf's own struggles from childhood abuse to outstanding success to personal crisis and finally to complete self-fulfillment. His story is interwoven with practical advice, inspirational teachings, and motivational exercises, which instantly give you the answers you seek. Malouf has made it his mission to help others understand what is holding each of us back from living life to the fullest. Don't wait. Become aware. Save what you have. Value what is truly important, your innermost desires, and create the life you deserve. Go to www.gregorymalouf.com slash silent offer. That's G-R-E-G-O-R-Y-M-A-L-O-U-F dot com forward slash silent offer. There you'll get more information about Greg and the book Silent, The Power of Silence. You are listening to New Consciousness Review. You can learn more about Miriam Knight's guests by visiting the NCR online showcase of Conscious Media, where you'll find thousands of spiritual and progressive titles of authors and filmmakers. And now let's get back to Miriam and her guest. And we're back. We're speaking with Dr. Raymond Moody and David Hinshaw. We have to get you in, David, um, who have created the first in a series of television programs called Conversations with Raymond Moody. And the first one that we're talking about is his um, interview with Eben Alexander. Um, getting back to uh, your uh, experiences, your conversations over the decades with these um, uh, near-death experiencers, um, there's the concept of the soul school. What, what is your understanding 
of what it's all about. Why are we here in the first place? Well, the trouble is that if I just tell you what I have finally reached is my thought on this, I'm going to sound to our listeners quite psychotic. <laughs> but I tell you, at, nine, at 69 years of age and having worked for some time in a maximum security for the criminally insane with uh, paranoid schizophrenic killers and mass murderers and serial killers, you know, I really don't much mind people calling me insane because, um, you know, I've seen the real deal. <laughs> and um, um, so this may sound quite psychotic, but in terms of the soul, you know, you know, the question arises, what is it that survives? I have sort of reached this understanding now. I mean, I just have. And I will say by a long process, which I have resisted strenuously, but I have in the last year or so, uh, come to the realization that it's increasingly silly for me to offer, let's see, some of these cases are just so extraordinary that it's, it's any explanation you could formulate rather than just going on to say what seems to be, namely that there is a state of existence out after death, that any other formulation seems rather silly or arbitrary by comparison. And so that raises the question then of, well, there's survival of death, but what is it that survives? And this problem has gone literally back to antiquity. I mean, Plato is the person who came up with this idea of the soul that is still in Western thought, the idea that a soul is an immaterial entity that somehow inhabits the body or, in Plato's conception of it, is imprisoned in the body. Um, but then, you know, the question arises, well, what in the name of God is the soul? I mean, what do you mean by an immaterial substance? Uh, some people over the years have said that just doesn't make any sense. So over the years, philosophers and thinkers have tried to uh, formulate other um, uh, thoughts of what it is that makes us the unique individual that we are. John Locke, for example, the philosopher who had a lot to do with our constitution, um, said that what constitutes our personal identity is our specific memories. But I've got a different take. And, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> if I ask myself, um, um, you know, what is it <clears throat> most basically <clears throat> that constitutes a human being and a human life? And hold on to your hats, because this one is going to take a, a little while to digest. But I think that the the thing that we have as a human species, that as far as we know, as no other species has, is that is, as we go along in life, we narrate our life story. Right. We keep track of this story of our our life story. And what is a human life but a life story, that person's story. Mm -hmm. And I heard this great remark by Elie Wiesel. You remember the Nazi hunter, the man who uh, survived Auschwitz and then made it his campaign to go around to bring the perpetrators to justice and so on. A very wise and wonderful man, Elie Wiesel. And he said. God made man because he, capital H-E, loves stories. 
God made man because he loves stories. And that's what I have come to think, Miriam, as psychotic as it may seem, that this thing we're in now is all about. This is God's education and entertainment medium. We go through these lives to learn things, to experience things. And as my wonderful daughter told me about three years ago, and my kids incidentally don't hear about life after death at home. That's my profession. At home, we talk about the what's for dinner, uh, the, the homework, you know, what's on the movies, uh, and, and um, so on. So my kids don't get this at home, and they don't go to church. We live in Alabama, and I'm afraid of snakes, you know. So... Um, <laughs> So um, my daughter, just on a walk that we took, she's, she's a Blackfeet Indian, incidentally. We adopted her at the moment of birth, and we take these long walks. So I guess it's in her to, you know, they, they were gatherers, so the hunter-gatherers. So her ancestry is a gatherer. She just loves to take long walks. And about three years ago, we're sitting on this bridge we like to sit on and talk, and she said out of nowhere, she said, you know, I don't like this place. And it was obvious she meant this world. So I was shocked. And I, she went on and she said, yeah, you know, she said, when you die, you just go up and um, God takes you up and he keeps you up there, she said, till all the people you've known while you're alive on earth have died. And then he sends you back as another person. In other words, for a, for um, another story, and um, and you know, I think the reincarnation idea fits in very well with my idea of personal identity. That um, what are what are we but our life stories? So, in effect, that I think that this uh, thing we're in is a um, it's a it's a way of learning. It's, it's kind of a a holographic projection of consciousness that interacts with with some other X factors that I just don't understand. But I think that it's um, it has to do with experiencing a life story mm-hmm. and and for purposes such as learning and uh, learning to love, especially. So we're we're kind of like television or theater for God to keep him from getting bored. Or for ourselves. I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing to do is to go through a life, especially as you get older and you begin to see the, um, the, uh, the patterns in it. I remember uh, I heard um, Joseph Campbell say years ago that, that, and he was in his 80s at that time, but he said that uh, the older he gets, that the, that the more it seemed to him as he looked back at his life that it had been a sort of script. And, and the reason that impressed me so much was that I heard this constantly from my patients who were elderly. I, before I went into forensic psychiatry, I did a lot of um, geriatric psychiatry. And not all of my patients by any means were Alzheimer's or anything. Many of them were uh, people whose cognitive skills were very well good and so on, but they were in some sort of situation or, you know, uh, 
um, depression or and and they would review their life and, and many of them said that same thing to me that the older you get the more when you look back at your life it seems almost like a script now on the one hand somebody's going to listen to this and say oh that's just a metaphor I mean what you're doing there is that you you know like Shakespeare said um, all the world's a stage and one man plays many roles and uh, I heard a playwright not long ago say um uh, a play is just a, a life with the boring parts taken out. And and some may look at this and say, it's just a metaphor, Raymond. I mean, you're taking the human institution of the stage and you're projecting it out in the universe. But I say, no, no, no. What I think is that the that the great dramatists like uh, Aeschylus and Euripides and Sophocles, that just being one people who thought about things, they had realized that facet of life just as I did as a young psychiatrist, that that the older you get, the more when you look back at your life, it seems to have this dramatic structure. As, as Aristotle told us, uh, like a narrative has a beginning and a middle and an end. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that Aristotle was making that up. Aristotle was observing it. As a fact. So I think that, you know, Aeschylus and Euripides and company just got the idea, hey, you know, this is how life is. So we can put this on. Let's build us a flat place out here and just get some people to enact for this. So I do think that life has a dramatic structure. Uh, Fascinating. Now, as a psychiatrist with the background that you have, I have two questions for you. One, Do you ever think that perhaps schizophrenics are actually communicating with other planes of information? I've never had that intuition even a single time. I had, um, and you know, that was my specialty, was severely psychotic people. Mm -hmm. And uh, my impression with that is that that is a schizophrenia, uh, Miriam is a physical illness. I mean, if you've been around a lot of sick people, um, schizophrenics look sick. I mean, there, this is a physical illness ultimately, and someday, ultimately, we will find out specifically where it is. But even, you know, I mean, this. Even after, and I'm not talking here about bodily habits or anything, even a, you know, a schizophrenic, even when stepping straight out of the shower, there is, a, and many psychiatrists will tell you this, there's a certain sort of um, odor to, that, to it that you can, um, you can sense, and especially when you have experience. So, no, this is a physical illness. But I will say that I've seen things in psychiatry that, yes, uh, indicated to me that people were put in the mental hospital and uh, just because um, they w- were in touch with some other domain of existence. It wasn't schizophrenia, but this was, for example, in about 1988 or 1989, I was called to as a consultant to a state mental hospital that was having some difficulties. And because of my knowledge of geriatric psychiatry, I went there as a as a consultant and just walking across the campus of this state hospital, I saw a man who was just a gusher of love is, is all I can describe it. I, he uh, would just stand there with a big smile on his face and just rattling off this absolute nonsense. It made no sense, but 
the he was just like a gusher of love and the young woman who was uh, had invited me there as a consultant was walking across the campus with me and i s- stopped to watch this just clearly you know it's coming from elsewhere is all all i can describe it and i said wow you know and she said to me very calmly she said yes i come and i hug him every day mm-hmm. and it energizes me for the whole day so yes i've seen things in psychiatry that um are uh, you know are spiritual in nature but schizophrenia i think is not one of them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well uh we're we're kind of drawing to towards the end of our our time together and we haven't even heard from david david yeah well that's good he's uh, finally <laughs> sobered up a little bit here <laughs> hey no i'm just kidding i'm just kidding david so, uh, what do you have in the pipeline david. do you have the next film in the series planned um, we we do have um, a couple of ideas. Uh, there's an uh, interesting case in um, Salt Lake City where um, um, a, a, a man who had a near-death experience, his near-death experience was somewhat shared by the uh, trauma uh, surgeon or the, the emergency room surgeon who was w- working on him. And that's a... <clears throat> Raymond has more details of that, but we're, we're not real anxious to 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 come out with a mm-hmm. lot of details. But mm-hmm. uh, that's that's one, um, and we're always looking for um, anyone who has. We're, we're interested in not so much the story of a near death experience, but advancing the understanding. Um, of the concept of uh, of life beyond this plane or or in another realm or I, I don't know the right mm-hmm. words because I, I'm not a wordsmith but um, so if people have an idea to propose um, should they contact you please please uh, RaymondMoody.org um, there are contact information at RaymondMoody.org. Uh huh. Um, and they can get in touch with us through that. Okay. Okay. Very good. And uh, where will people be able to find uh, the this present DVD with Eben Alexander? Um, it's being released by Beyond Words uh, dist- uh, Distribution Company. Uh, they will have it on their webs on October twenty ninth. Um, it will be available on Amazon. It will also be available at RaymondMoody.org. Uh, hopefully it will be everywhere and anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yes. And again, the title is Conversations with Raymond A. Moody Jr. Yeah, it's, we're, we're calling it, we're always allowing the guest to go first. Okay. Uh, our, our, our good manners. <laughs> uh, it's conversations with, and this this first one is Eben Alexander and Raymond Moody. Uh-huh. Subsequent ones will be, you know, conversations with whoever and Raymond Moody. Okay, um, great. 
Okay, so uh, it would be uh, RaymondMoody.org, yes? Correct, correct, yes. Great. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time that we have, so get back to partying wherever you are. (laughs) (laughs) We've been speaking with Dr. Raymond Moody and David Hinshaw about conversations with various interesting experiencers of afterlife phenomena. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much. Next week, our guests will be theologian Matthew Fox and activist Adam Bucko. Together, they've written a book called Occupy Spirituality, A Radical Vision for a New Generation. You won't want to miss this one. And now we're going to close with our track of the week called Almost Home by Susan Alexander.
Susan Alexander from Nashville, Tennessee. It's from her album Living Large, and you can find out more about Susan's music on her website, thechickthatpicks.com. Well, that's it for our show for today. I hope you'll join us next week. And do visit our website, ncreview.com. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.